0: well good morning harvest it's good to be here with you this morning if you have your bibles go ahead and open up to joshua chapter 12 uh last week katie and i were not here we were out in colorado and so on our way coming back east pastor doug and karen were heading out west and so we kind of tag teamed and he left us off here in joshua chapter 12 uh As you see up here on the screen, and maybe a slide we're pretty familiar with, but maybe some are new, we're going through a series in Joshua, and uh, we've kind of split it up in this way here with the introduction in chapter 1, and then chapters 2 through 12, uh, we've been looking at the conquest, and so from here, we're going to move into 13 through 21, uh, and that's where we're going to be kind of switching gears a little bit. So you can see Joshua chapter 12 uh, is kind of an end to this section and uh, I'm really looking forward to our time in God's word together this morning. Just being away last Sunday uh, was a great reminder for both Katie and I, how much we love this place and how much we love this people. Uh, well, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll jump into Joshua chapter 12. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather here together in your name Uh Lord, I pray right now that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. God, you remind us that your word makes the simple wise, that it enlightens the eyes, that it restores the soul. And so this morning, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that all those things would happen. God, we know that no intellect of man, uh, there's nothing up here that, that... Any man can do or say to transform or to change a heart, but Lord, through the power of your spirit working through your word, uh, we know that you can unlock our hearts to love you more, to know you more, and to enjoy you more. We ask for that this morning in Christ's name, amen. All right, everybody there, Joshua chapter 12. Okay, so here's the deal. We're going to read through the chapter together. You guys have to make me promise that you're going to stick with me through the whole thing. And in order to help you with that, you have a part. Okay? So when we get down to verse 9, it begins to list some kings. And after each king that it lists, you have the word one. That is your part. Okay? So I will read the king and you will read the word one. Deal? Okay. Here we go. Joshua chapter 12. It says, Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon, with all the Arabah eastward. Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, and ruled over from Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, to the boundary of the Ammonites, that is, half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the sea of Kinneroth eastward. And in the direction of Beth-Jeshemoth, to the Sea of the Ereba, the Salt Sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah, and Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edrei, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Salaca and all Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Maccathites and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sion, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them, And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halleck, that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession, according to their allotments, in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negev, The land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. You guys ready? Here we go. The king of Jericho, the king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, the king of Gezer, the king of Deber, the king of Geter, the king of Horma, the king of Arad, the king of Libna, the king of Adolam, the king of Macada, the king of Bethel, the king of Tapua, the king of Hefer, the king of Athik, the king of Lasharon, the king of Madin, the king of Hazor, the king of Shimron Moran, the king of Akshapha, the king of Tanakh, the king of Megiddo. The king of Kidesh, the king of Jachneum in Carmel, the king of Dor in Nephath-Dor, the king of Goim in Galilee, the king of Tirzah in all 31 kings. Give yourselves a round of applause. That was great. You guys did fantastic. Uh, so after reading through Joshua chapter 12 and talking to Pastor Doug and him saying, Hey, Cody, uh, this is the passage that I'd like for you to preach. This was my reaction. Okay, uh, we can get one thing clear right from the get-go. We all know how Pastor Doug plans to get away, okay? He looks ahead. That's what we call good planning. Uh, but seriously, this morning, I think the question is, what do you do with a Joshua chapter 12? I mean, it's here, it's in the Bible, and that just happens to be where we are this Sunday. So what do you do with something like this? Uh I think so oftentimes what we do is we get to a passage like Joshua chapter 12 and we just kind of breeze right by it. Uh, As a moment of confession back in February when Pastor Doug announced that we'd be going through the book of Joshua, uh, Katie and I started going through the book in our family worship time and for about 11 straight days, we went through Joshua and then we got to chapter 12 and we said, why don't we pick a different book? Uh... (laughs) It's intimidating. We get to a passage like this and we're like, where do we even go? Uh, I think so many times too, for anyone who spent any kind of time in God's word, you get to a chapter like this that opens with, now these are the kings and immediately you know that what's to follow is a list of a bunch of guys you don't know and can't pronounce and a bunch of locations that you have no idea where they are. Uh, And so what you end up doing is you start reading through the passage and you go, now this guy of that place, and then this guy who had that guy, and so on and so forth. And it just gets very, very confusing. Uh, I think our first thought is is oftentimes, well, certainly this is not important. Uh, Or maybe we, we move to, well, fine, it's in the Bible, so it could be important, but not for me. I mean, how could this actually have any kind of application to my life today? And for others of us who are a bit more bold and frank, just look at it and say, that's just boring. I don't have time for that right now. Uh, But here's what we have to remember. We have to remember all the way back to Joshua chapter one in our introduction where Pastor Doug encouraged us from that chapter that if we're to be God's people, then we are to be a people that are in the word and a people doing the word. And so with that, we have to remember we only have 66 books. From the front cover of this book to the back cover of this book, there are 66 books in here. And in that, God has said that I have given you everything that you need for life and godliness. So think about it for a second. 66 books, that's not a lot. Uh, Elementary school kids, you guys have your reading programs where you probably read more than 66 books in a year so that you can get your pizza party. Uh, then you go to high school when it's like a full four years of English curriculum is at least 66 books. And then you move to college where it seems like each class requires you to read at least 66 books. We don't have a whole lot here. There's only 66. And do you think God would have wasted some space in this book? Uh, we also have to remember that in Joshua, there's only 24 chapters, The book of Joshua is 24 chapters long and here we have chapter 12, an entire chapter devoted to listing out what's really 33 kings, the 31 on the west side and the two on the east side that Moses brought the people in with. And so we have to ask the question, could this passage of scripture actually have some sort of implication on our lives today? So first of all, if God wrote it, then we realize that what's said here is of utmost importance. And if God included it in this book, then we have to realize that it can have eternal impact on our lives. Uh, As I was preparing this week and after kind of Pastor Doug said, hey, you're going to be doing Joshua chapter 12, that gave me the, uh, the joy of getting back into it and saying, okay, there must be something here that God wants to communicate to his people. And so this morning, we're going to kind of look at one of those ways. Uh, So the first thing that we're going to do, and I think what's helpful with a passage like this, is to begin by making some observations. So the first observation that we're going to want to make is the literary context. Uh, As noted earlier, Joshua is 24 chapters long. This is chapter 12. So any math whizzes out there that can do quick math, 24 chapters long. We're in chapter 12. This is the... Okay, halfway through the middle of the book, very good. Uh, Now, some of you guys might say, well, Cody, the original text didn't have chapters, so sorry. Well, then there's 303 verses in Joshua 1 through 12, and 355 in 13 through 24. Then you object again and say, Cody, they didn't have verses in the original text either. Fine. It takes 11 pages in my Bible for Joshua 1 through 12 and 12 pages for 13 through 24. And then you might say, Cody, at which point I'd say, Stop. Okay? Uh, it's in the middle of the book for a reason. Uh, so what we have here, and you can kind of see, we, we, we're going to split it out a little bit. For some of you, it might help just uh, being a little bit more visual. But what we have at first is Joshua 1 through 11. And then we have Joshua 13 through 24 to the end. And right here in the middle, the part that we're focusing on today is Joshua chapter 12. Now, I think it's important to ask the question then. If we remember that 12 is kind of the closing of a section, then let's recount real quickly together what happened in Joshua chapters one through 11. We began with our introduction where the Lord encouraged Joshua and said, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed for the Lord your God will go with you. And then we move to Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. And in Joshua chapter 2, we saw the story of a Canaanite prostitute where God is willing to allow her to be grafted into the nation of Israel. Showing immediately as the people are getting ready to start the conquest that God, Yahweh, has always been about salvation to the nations. Then we moved into Joshua chapter 3. And there we saw the crossing of the Jordan River, an amazing time where the mighty hand of Yahweh stopped the flow of the river and allowed for the people of Israel to pass on dry ground. And when they got to the other side, they set up 12 stones as a monument that the name of Yahweh and the mighty works that He has done might be remembered forever. From there, we moved to Jericho. And in Jericho, we see the Lord going before the people of Israel fighting for them and he himself tearing down the walls. But that leads to instant tragedy because then we have Achan. Achan goes into Jericho, takes some of the devoted things, hides them in his tent and brings disaster on the nation, seeing the death and murder of many of the people of Israel as they fight against Ai. And from there, uh, Achan and his whole family are stoned so that the people of Israel and everyone else who would read it would remember that the Lord is serious about obedience. And then the people go and they conquer Ai after Achan and his family have been stoned. And we see the Lord working in mighty ways again amongst the people of Israel. After that, we get to Joshua chapter nine. In Joshua chapter nine is the Gibeonite deception. Uh, These people come and they say, hey, we can't fight against Israel. Have you seen the things that the Lord their God is doing? Let's go and try and deceive them. So they come up and say, hey, we're from a far nation. Make a covenant with us and we'll be your slaves. And we remember in 9.14, it says, but the people of Israel did not seek counsel from the Lord. They made a covenant with the Gibeonites, thus making it impossible for them to destroy and defeat all of the people that the Lord had given into their hands. And from there, in the last couple of weeks, chapters 10 and 11, we've looked at the conquest of the north part of Canaan and the south part as well. So that's where we've been in Joshua chapters 1 through 11. Where we're going in 13 through 24 is the settlement of the land. And so what we have, and and Pastor Eric's going to begin taking us through that starting next week, but what we have here in Joshua chapter 12 is what I'd like to think of as an interlude. Okay. Uh, An interlude is a musical term, and I have no idea anything about music, so I had to do some research on this. Uh, But it's called an interlude, and oftentimes what an interlude does is it acts as a shorter middle section in the middle of two larger parts. The interlude can be used in many different ways, uh, but most of the time it's used to transition. So it's used to close off one section and bring you to the next section seamlessly, And that's exactly what Joshua chapter 12 is doing. It actually has huge impact on reading the remainder of the book of Joshua. See, throughout the book of Joshua, we've seen the nation of Israel push the pause button a couple times. If you remember back in Joshua chapter 3, before the people were getting ready to cross over to the Jordan, uh, God said, Joshua was commanded to tell the people, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, the Lord will do wondrous things in your midst. And the people pushed the pause button and they stopped everything just before they were getting ready to pass through. Well, something similar is happening here in Joshua chapter 12, but this reflection is taking on a whole different tone. The reflection here is actually pushing the pause button so that they can recount the mighty things that Yahweh has done in chapters 1 through 11 and give fresh context to what's going to happen in 13 through 24. Essentially, Joshua 12 is being used to wrap up this first section of the book. Uh, If you guys remember, Pastor Doug mentioned it last week, but it's been years, years since the fall of Jericho. And even for us, uh, it's been six or seven weeks since we were in Jericho. And so it's important for us to have a chapter like Joshua 12 as a refresher course to give us fresh context for what's about to happen throughout the remainder of the book. So that's its literary context. But the next thing that we're going to look at is its context in redemptive history. Uh, This is something Pastor Doug did last week, where he took us and he showed us in Joshua chapter 11, where oftentimes we look at God and we say, God's the bad guy. How could God allow this to happen? Or a good God wouldn't have done that, but... He kind of went through starting in Genesis and going all the way to Revelation, showing that it's not God who's the bad guy, it's our enemy, the devil, Satan, who is the bad guy. He doesn't care for us. As a matter of fact, he said to want to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's described as a roaring lion seeking to devour our souls. And we saw that all the way from the first book to the last book of God's word. And so this morning, I want to do something fairly similar but I want to kind of take it from a different approach and see if we can come out with a different observation at the end of that. So we start in Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one, we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know right from the start who God, who Yahweh is. He is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. It's made clear that he is the sovereign one and man is the active participant. We see clearly that God is the purpose giver and man is called to be the purpose fulfiller. Uh, then we move forward to the days of Noah and we see the Lord looking down saying, it ought not to be this way. He says that he looked at the hearts of men, and every inclination was towards evil. And so God decides to blot out all of mankind except for Noah and his family. From there, moving ahead, we see God calling Abram to be his people. And we get to Genesis chapter 15, a passage that we've gone back to many times throughout this series. And in Genesis 15, God makes a promise that in centuries, Abram, a childless man, would have his descendants take over the land of nations that are far more powerful and numerous than he. You fast forward again, and we see the people of Israel in bondage to the Egyptians. God speaks to Moses from a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, and he says, Surely I have seen the affliction of my people, and I myself have come to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Moses goes before Pharaoh and in Exodus chapter 5. He says, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Can you imagine? The son of a slave standing before the king of Egypt saying, my God says, let my people go to which the king of Egypt, Pharaoh replies, "Uh, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, just wait one second, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, because in just a moment, the mighty hand of Yahweh is going to release 10 plagues on your nation. And with the death of your firstborn son, you will release the people of Yahweh. And there they'll be chased down by the Egyptians only to be stopped at the Red Sea where the mighty hand of God would split the sea in half. The people of Israel would go through on dry ground and it would swallow up the Egyptian army. From there, we see the people of Israel spending more than 40 years in the wilderness, getting acquainted with Yahweh. And there they see mighty things like food raining from the heavens water coming out of rocks. They see Yahweh himself descending upon the mountains in smoke and in thunder and with lightning and speaking to the nation. They see the tabernacle erected, the law given, and all throughout their time in the wilderness, they're reminded over and over and over again of the promise that one day they would inherit the land that Yahweh has set apart for them. As the people start getting towards the boundary of the land, they send in 12 spies. 10 of them come back and their response in Numbers 13 through 14 is this. Surely we cannot conquer these people. They're huge and their cities are fortified. We are not able and Yahweh is not able. Deuteronomy chapter one recounts the way that Moses responded to them. He says in 29 through 30, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of them for the Lord your God himself goes before you and he will himself fight for you in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God has carried you as a man carries his son. Think of how sweet and how tender that is that God Yahweh is going to carry his people as a father would his children. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 24, we're reminded there that it says, And he, Yahweh, will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have utterly destroyed them. Now, can we just stop for a second? Can we stop for a second after looking at Genesis and coming here to the beginning of Joshua and say, Who in the world does this? Who makes claims like Yahweh makes? Not in the wildest fairy tales or stories that you could come up with. Would anybody put something like this out there and say, yeah, let's just make something up like that. Who else in all of history has made claims like Yahweh has? Who stood before kings and said, let my people go. Uh, It's amazing the things that Yahweh is doing here through his people We see from Genesis 1, Yahweh creates the earth. Then Yahweh blots out mankind because of their wickedness. Yahweh makes a promise to a childless old man that requires him to have children and then for his children to inherit a land of powerful nations. Yahweh demands that the king of Egypt release all of his slaves. Yahweh causes plagues to fall upon the nation. Yahweh takes care of his people as a father would his son. And Yahweh says in Deuteronomy 7, Surely I will give all the kings of these nations into your hand. My friends, Joshua chapter 12 is huge. Joshua chapter 12 is not a breeze by it. Let's get on to bigger and better things. Joshua chapter 12 has massive implications for our lives because it comes just after Yahweh has handed 31 kings, 31 nations into the hands of Israel. And over and over again, 31 times, we saw it in Joshua 12, Yahweh is declaring this truth. He's saying, in this world, there are many kings, lowercase k, but I, Yahweh, am the king of kings. And he says it 31 times over and over and over again. I am more powerful than that king, and I have handed that king into your hands, and that king, and that king, and that king. Joshua 12 is not a boring list. It's an itemization of God's faithfulness and God's power that he can enact through his people, showing that he himself is king of kings and lord of lords. We see up here on this map, we have all kinds of cities listed out here, 31 total. And up here, these little dots represent the territories of these kings There are these tiny dots up here that are probably bigger than the actual cities, the territories that these kings would stand over. Lowercase k, kings. But if you zoom out just a little bit, you can see the territory of the king of kings. And if you look closely on that map, I can't see Jericho anymore. I can't see Ai anymore because those nations, those territories are small and finite in comparison to what God, Yahweh, is king over. There is no one like him in all the earth. And Joshua chapter 12 reminds us that there is no king like Yahweh. All other kings must submit to his power and they will be crushed under the force of his mighty hand. So the question then is why now? Why the reminder now in Joshua chapter 12? Why did they use this time to remind us 31 times that Yahweh is the king of kings? Uh, If you remember, this is wrapping up sections 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11. And in 13, the people are going to start settling. They're going to start possessing the land and settling in so that they can become the sending base place for Yahweh's people. And in this, Yahweh is reminding them that as you settle, do not forget who your king is. As you settle into this land, do not forget that I am. Yahweh and the King of Kings and how gracious and how loving and how merciful it is of God to do this. Because if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter eight, he lovingly warns his people starting in uh, chapter eight, verse 17. He says, beware, beware my loved ones, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord, your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord, your God, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Just like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord, your God this becomes extremely important. Joshua 12 becomes extremely important as we look at the rest of the history of the nation of Israel. Because you move forward just one book and you come to uh, to Judges chapter two and in verse 10, one of the saddest verses in all of the Old Testament, it says, and there arose a a generation after Joshua's generation who neither knew the Lord nor the works that he had done. My friends, they did not talk Joshua chapter 12. The parents did not talk to their children about Joshua chapter 12 and recount the 31 kings that Yahweh powerfully handed over to them as a nation. They got to Joshua chapter 12 and just like me, just like some of us, they said, nope, not important. Let's breeze right by it. Let's get onto something that's more applicable or something that would, would really help me out today. And instead, had they had taken the time and reminded the upcoming generation of the mighty and powerful things that Yahweh had done for them, then we might not see a Judges chapter 2 verse 10. It said they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served other gods. They went after other kings. If you move beyond the period of the Judges, you look in 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 4, and I think one of the saddest passages as well. The people approach Samuel, the prophet of the nation, the one who speaks to them on behalf of God. And they say to Samuel, appoint for us a king, one who would rule over us just like all the other nations. Can you imagine the dagger that was to Yahweh's heart? We want to be just like all the other nations, establish for us a king. And in Yahweh responds in verse seven saying, obey the voice of this people. Obey the voice of this people for they have rejected me from being their king. Spells disaster for the entire nation. From there we see the kingdom split in half. We see good kings and evil kings. And we move to Isaiah. In Isaiah, we begin to see the prophecies of Babylon coming in to capture and take over the nation of Israel. And in Isaiah chapter six, verse one, we have this declaration that Yahweh is still the king of kings. It says in the year that King Uzziah died, little K king, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. He's saying, yes, Israel, your little K king might be dead, but the Lord, your God is an everlasting king and his dominion is forever and he will never be pictured off of his throne. You move forward in Isaiah 40, 22 through 23. It says, it is he, it is Yahweh who sits above the circle of the earth. And it is he who sits on his throne. It is... he sees the inhabitants of the earth and they are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. It is he who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. The people are then taken into captivity under King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember small K, King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel stands before the king who's conquered his nation. And this is what he has to say to him. He says in Daniel chapter 2, 20, blessed be the name of God, Yahweh, forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. It is he who changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. Later in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar himself catches on and he says this to all the peoples of the earth. He says, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And after the Babylonian captivity, Persia conquers Babylon. And there we see later on in Isaiah, Cyrus, the king of Persia, is referred to as my servant who will shepherd my people by Yahweh. Showing that he is in complete control and there is no king that can stand in defiance to him. You move forward just a couple centuries And you see Jesus Christ hanging on a cross and above his bleeding head, you see a sign that says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And can I submit to us this morning that though that sign was correct, that sign was incomplete because what it should have read is this is Jesus, the King of Kings. That's what it's talking about here in Joshua chapter 12, a declaration that Yahweh is King of Kings. Jesus Christ is King of Kings. Revelation chapter one, written during a time of great persecution where the emperors of the Roman empire were coming against all the followers of Christ. And at the beginning of that, as encouragement to those who are in the midst of these trials, it opens by saying this, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, listen, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Though you're in the midst of persecution and though these emperors and all the armies that they may command seem fierce, know for a fact that Jesus Christ holds them in the palm of his hand and they are no match for the king of kings. And finally in Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, it says, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on there that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. And can anyone tell me what that name is? That's right, it is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Brothers and sisters, redeemed in Christ, and everyone else make no mistake. Yahweh is the King of Kings. Jesus Christ is the Is the king of kings. And in Joshua chapter 12. Before the people begin to settle into the land. They're reminded 33 times. That Yahweh is the one who has power and dominion and authority. Over each and every single one of those kings. And so as we're reading them off. It is if we are saying yes God. You are the king of kings. Yes God. You are the king of kings. And so I ask this morning. The question for us today, having read at Joshua chapter 12, is this. Have we gladly accepted that fact? Have we gladly accepted the fact that Jesus Christ is the king of kings? Do we really believe that? And do we really live that way? Perhaps in your life, there's another king right now. Perhaps just like the people in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you've rejected God from being your king. Who or what is your king this morning? Another question. What is your Joshua chapter 12? What is your Joshua chapter 12, the passage of scripture that reminds you over and over again that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings? What's the passage of scripture that you take your children to or your grandchildren to and you say, here's how we know that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and that he has conquered them all. Is it Revelation 19 where we see Jesus pictured coming in victory with King of Kings and Lord of Lords written on his robe and on his thigh? Or is it Philippians chapter two, nine through 11, where it says, therefore God has highly exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of God. Or is it maybe Colossians chapter two, 13 through 15, where it says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen to 15 he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Brothers and sisters, that is a beautiful reminder that there is no power, there is no king visible or invisible whom Yahweh and Jesus Christ is not the king over. So do you believe that in Christ All of the rulers of this present age, visible and invisible, have been disarmed and put to open shame. Or are you still submitting to these defeated kings? Perhaps some of us are like the people that God warned against lovingly in Deuteronomy 8.17. And we say to ourselves, my power and the might of my hand are good enough. They are sufficient and they have gained for me all of these things. Brothers and sisters, it is clear here in scripture that God is our only hope in life and death. Jesus Christ, our King of Kings is our only hope in life and death. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from him, we are nothing. Our hands and our might are nothing Compared to the might of his hands, we are completely unable. Jesus Christ is completely able. He is the king of kings, and we must gladly and joyfully surrender our lives to him. Because then we have so many promises that become true in our lives. Like starting in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And then in Romans chapter eight, verse one, it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I don't know about you, but after hearing about Yahweh and the might of his hand, I certainly wanna be in a place where I'm at peace with Yahweh and not in a place of condemnation and under the wrath of Yahweh. Because then we get into Romans chapter eight and we see the promises that become true for us. It says, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us From the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Apart from Christ we are without hope in this world. He alone is the king of kings. And we must not reject him as our king. We must gladly and joyfully surrender ourselves. And embrace him as our king. Joshua chapter 12 reminds us. Reminds us 33 times 31 kings that Joshua and the people conquered and the two kings that Moses went before that Yahweh is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and our life is only secure and we can only have peace when we gladly embrace him as our king. And we can know this, that the Lord our God has gone before us. He has fought for us. And he is coming again to establish his kingdom with surety and with finality. He will establish his kingdom and rule as the king of kings. And so this morning, this morning, that's what we are going to celebrate as we take communion with one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us to proclaim the year or to proclaim the the Lord's death. Until his return. And so as we prepare to do that. If our communion servers want to come forward. And I want to ask you guys. To think about some of these questions. To really consider these things. And is your life. Making a declaration. Just like Joshua chapter 12. That Yahweh. That Jesus Christ is the king of kings. And that there is none. That is like him. As we prepare for communion this morning. Pray with me. father we thank you for your word we thank you for the truth and the beauty that we see here in your word god we thank you for the loving and merciful reminder that just when we think we can settle just when we think life is all good and that we have somehow earned where we are god you remind us that you are the king of kings You remind us that you are the Lord of Lords and all power and authority and dominion are in your hands. And so this morning, Father, we gladly and joyfully come before you and we proclaim your death until you come again. God, we say again and again and again, you are the King of Kings in the name of the king we pray. Amen. Before you get up and grab the communion elements, I want you to take a second and just reflect and ask yourself this question. Ask yourself right now, is Jesus Christ really my king? Have I gladly surrendered my life to him as king? if you could answer that wholeheartedly with a yes, then ask yourself this, am I living as though he is my king? Think about some of the defeated kings that you might still be submitting to and confess those to the Lord and declare that Jesus Christ is the king of that king. And for those who would wholeheartedly and unreservedly respond, yes, I am living as though he is my King of Kings, then take a minute to go to your Joshua chapter 12 and look at that passage of scripture and remember the mighty things that God has done through Jesus Christ. Maybe for you, it's Ephesians one through two. Maybe it's that passage in Colossians two or Philippians two, whatever it is, spend some time there. And when you're ready, you can get up and grab the elements. Father, this morning, we praise you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What king would not only fight for his people, but what king would go so far as to have his body broken and his blood spilled for his people? Only you, Jesus, only the king of kings would do that for his people. It is you that we worship today. And Lord, we long for you to establish your kingdom. And yet we're thankful that you are patient, longing that none should perish. But we pray, come Lord Jesus, come our king and establish your kingdom here. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, to the only God our Savior through our Lord Jesus Christ, be glory and dominion and majesty forever and ever. Amen.